Hello, and thank you for joining the Atlantic Council podcast. My name is Anne Bibarinen, and I am with the Atlantic Council's Cyber Statecraft Initiative at the Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. I am joined today by Ms. Jane Holute to discuss election cybersecurity and the extent to which American elections still, almost 14 months after the 2016 presidential elections, remain unprotected against cyber threats, what this means for the upcoming midterm elections, and what we can do to protect our electoral process. Jane is the CEO of Sigma North America and formerly served as the CEO of the Center for Internet Security and as the Deputy Secretary of Homeland Security. Jane is also an Atlantic Council Board Director and one of our most recognized cybersecurity experts here at the Council. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Anna. To start off, it's been over a year since the 2016 presidential elections. So why are we still talking about election cybersecurity and why should we continue these conversations? Well, we're talking about it in part because in some of the elections this past fall, uh, they're still undecided and there's still some contention over exactly who won. Um, In Virginia, for example, there's been several cases, two at least, um, where the uh, results of the election have been contested and people have really wanted to have a secure knowledge about what exactly happened and who exactly won. And additionally, I think we are looking at the question of elections and trust in the results against a background of a broad collapse of trust in public sector institutions. Um, People everywhere are questioning uh, the institutions, what they're saying, what they stand for. Um, They don't trust banks, they don't trust businesses, they don't trust the media, they don't trust markets, and increasingly they don't trust government. And so people really want to have some assurance that what they're hearing and what they're seeing um, is in fact true. Absolutely. And, and while multiple investigations are still underway that will hopefully reveal the full impact of Russian involvement in the 2016 elections, we already do have alarming evidence of Russian involvement in swaying or attempting to sway the vote for one candidate over the other. And much of the discussion, of course, is, has focused on fake news and leaks and so on. But what is perhaps even more alarming is the evidence of Russian state-backed hackers successfully breaching electronic polling books, um, state and local voter databases in at least 21 states across the country. As far as we know, none of the voting machines used in the 2016 elections were hacked and none of the votes were actually changed. However, last summer there was a hacker conference, DEFCON in in Las Vegas, that hosted the first ever voting machine village where they invited thousands of hackers to probe and, and breach voting machines still being used in multiple states across the country. I believe there were 25 voting machines and every single one was breached. So this clearly showed that there are real vulnerabilities also in the voting machines that we're using in our elections. So could you talk a little bit more about what makes these machines so vulnerable to breaches and what does it mean when we have hackers who can who can hack into our voting machines? Well, let's, you've raised all of the issues, all of the important issues surrounding elections security, so let's try and break it down. What you're basically uh, pointing to is how can I, as a voter, how can I, as a citizen, um, and there are, are many important uh, non-voting citizens, but how can I, as a voter and citizen, have confidence that my vote is cast and counted as I cast it? So, so there is um, all of the uh, all of there are all of the elements that you raised about disinformation and fake news. Let's set that aside for a moment. Let's talk about the machine itself or the process of voting itself. Um, and that process begins with my going into a polling place, my having registered to vote, 
uh, and that record of my registration being accounted for uh, in the county or the municipality where I live. I go into the polling place, I present identification, the person at the polling place verifies that yes, I am who I say I am. That's also an issue in many places for many people. Um, but I am who I say I am, and in fact, I have registered to vote, and I'm authorized to vote in that location. I then go in to the, I, I receive my ballot, uh, a paper ballot, uh, an electronic platform on which I can vote, um, and I cast my vote, and then it's recorded and then counted. That's the process. So where are, is there a possibility for mischief or manipulation? At almost every turn, at almost every turn. So the first question, and indeed, this was a question that we asked ourselves in Homeland Security when we were looking at, at all of the issues related to ensuring a safe and secure and, and resilient home for the American people. Are you who you say you are? How do I know? And then secondly, is this ballot a legitimate ballot? How do I know? And then is the process for counting my ballot um, legitimate and unadulterated? How do I know? So now we're in an environment uh, where the need for trust is so paramount. It's not only the question, are you are who you say you are? Are you entitled to vote? It's the question, how do we know? Absolutely. And could you talk a little bit more about the voting machines themselves? What makes them so vulnerable and can we not trust them? Right. I don't know that it's that we can't trust the machine, but it is the machines, but it is that they are very vulnerable. You mentioned DEFCON um, and Black Hat, the very famous uh, hacker conferences that go on annually. Um, and and these conferences, particularly DEFCON, attracts the very best talent in the cybersecurity and the hacking world. And they looked at dozens of pieces of equipment, and they said, can we uh, break into this equipment uh, you know, how hard would that be? And it turns out, yes, they can break into pieces of those pieces of equipment, all of them, in fact, uh, and all of the pieces, many of them are still in use. And how hard uh, can it be? Turns out it's not really all that hard. So the question arises, um, this equipment is manipulable. Uh, we have cause to question the integrity of its ability to process, and we have to take steps to repair it. Okay, so what are the first steps and who has the responsibility for doing that? Um, and that's what people are wrestling with. There was a period of time after DEF CON when people were arguing over the legality of them hacking into the equipment. Uh, and, and that's really focusing on the wrong problem. Um, we need to focus on the problem uh, that is exposed, uh, that was exposed at DEF CON, which is the vulnerability of this equipment. It's old. Um, in many cases, the software running is old and unpatched. Uh, that means there are existing vulnerabilities that people know about um, and that can be exploited. And they demonstrated at DEF CON that they will be. So you mentioned that the hackers at DEF CON are some of the, the best of the best and very talented individuals, but they did not have any nation state backing and they were still able to breach the, the networks and breach these voting machines. So when we worry about Russia, um, does it actually have to be a nation state that interferes with our elections? Could it be a hacktivist group, a terrorist group, or, or anyone else? What, what kind of resources does it actually take and what kind of skill to be able to successfully um, alter the vote? Well, so it, it, again, we have a highly decentralized system of voting. You know, this is not a federally, a centrally controlled federal system. This is a highly decentralized system that's controlled at the local level. 
Um, and so you're right. I mean, hypothetically, anyone with a grudge, anyone with a preferred candidate uh, that had, had uh, some skill set, not even a particularly advanced skill set um, in cyber manipulation could affect these machines. But let's again back up. Um, we discussed earlier on the whole process of voting from voter registration, identity verification, and the provisioning of, of physical ballots in most cases, uh, and then the tabulation of those physical ballots. Um, and let me, let me spend a minute on the physical ballot, the piece of paper. Um, uh, I think everyone agrees now that we're in an environment where, you know, frankly, there's nothing you can do online. There's nothing you can do online, confident that your information or your identity might not be manipulated or exploited. I mean, that's an extraordinary statement. You know, now almost 30 years uh, coming up on the popularization of the internet and, and widespread access online. So that we still require a physical uh, item, in, in the case of voting, a piece of paper. Um, if you can have confidence that the piece of paper is a legitimate piece of paper, a, a legitimate ballot, and that your mark is your mark, and that then that ballot can be referred to if there's any question about the vote, that can begin to restore some confidence in the whole process because at least you know the ballot is secure. Um, and there are a number of ways. At SICPA, uh, the company that, that I run, the North American operation, which you mentioned at the top of the show, um, we provide, among other things, ink and technology um, for the majority of the world's banknotes. So we're very familiar with the securitizing of physical things, of paper documents, of, of uh, money, of currency, uh, of identity documents, passports, driver's license, uh, visas, and other um, uh, physical documents. So we know a lot about how to secure a piece of paper, a ballot, for example. So you, you know, is this an authentic ballot? How do I know? And so then when you put the voting itself, a paper ballot together uh, with risk limiting audits, that is to say we can go back, we can audit the paper ballots and, and, and it turns out um, that you don't have to do a, you know, a huge percentage of ballots to have high confidence that the results correspond with what you've tabulated electronically. So again, you can re begin to rebuild confidence in these machines or in this process, I should say, which is subject to hacking and interference um, through uh, the humble piece of paper. So now looking ahead to the 2018 midterms, which are coming up quickly, the first states are set to have their primaries in a matter of, matter of just a couple of months. Is having a paper trail or, and a way to audit the cast vote something that states could implement already before the midterms, those states that don't already have these processes in place? And what would be some other measures that state could take in the very limited time that we have left before the midterm elections? Right. And again, remember, because this is a highly decentralized process and that local jurisdictions are the ones responsible at the municipal or the county level, state level, um, what we find is that there's not just they're not flush with resources um, as everywhere they're very constrained, and so b all buying all new equipment that has been validated to be impervious to attack. First of all, no such thing exists. Second thing, it's 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 really an impractical um, strategy for any local jurisdiction to pursue. So um, a, beginning with the paper ballot is is the most uh, cost effective way and a and a highly validated paper ballot again not nearly as expensive as replacing your equipment. 
Um, other proposals that have been circulating are authenticating the machines uh, and the parts of the machines. Where have they come from? Um, authenticating the point of origin or the source of the essential equipment and the essential components of that equipment. Again, um, this is for, for uh, jurisdictions that, that don't have the flexibility to replace all of their equipment. This is not particularly feasible. Um, but that is uh, in discussion, and it's a process that can be put in place so that you know the machines that you're buying are, are, are what they say they are, and they're not transmitting information to anyone else or, or um, altering the information that they receive in any unacceptable way, in any way. Um, and then also the software that runs um, these machines. Uh, very often they're woefully out of date. There are scores of unpatched vulnerabilities. Uh, can a software be updated? Can officials within jurisdictions have high confidence that they have up-to-date uh, software, that it is currently patched, and that they understand the source and origin uh, of that software? And increasingly, there are going to be demands, and they've begun already, that software uh, writers and developers authenticate and certify uh, that their software um, does what it says it's supposed to do, and it does so free um, from obvious defects. And in the long term, looking at the 2020 presidential elections and beyond, are there any additional measures that you'd like to see implemented um, over the next couple of years? You know, um, I'm, I'm not a big believer in wand waving. You know, there's a lot of um, discussion out there that says, gee, if only, you know, we could do facial recognition and then we would solve all problems of identity. Um, and and uh, authentication, maybe. Uh, I don't know that I'm, I'm just not a believer in swish and flick. Uh, and there's a there's a silver bullet or a, you know uh, an incantation that you can uh, you can summon that would solve all of our problems. But clearly, um, people have an expectation, uh, largely from our commercial lives, that when we go online, um, our seem our experience will be seamless. You know, I, and, and we see it every day uh, in our consumer lives. You know, we, we want to watch a show. It's, at our, it's on demand. You know, we want a pair of shoes. A uh, company will deliver it to you free that afternoon. You don't like it, you can send it back the next day again for free and get a, get a replacement. So we're used to this seamless experience. And we're also used to a highly individuated experience where I get what I want on my terms. And if I don't like it, I have effective redress. I can send it back. I can, I can uh, make a claim, and it will be uh, addressed. And those experiences or those expectations that we have in our consumer lives have come into our civic lives. Why can't our government be like Amazon and deliver solutions that are highly individuated overnight for free? Um, why can't they know who I am every time I log on? Why do I have to provide uh, you know, endless amounts of information each and every time? Well, the reason you have to at the moment is because your government is asking you, are you who you say you are? How do we know? Um, and the risk that we take in government, you know, whether we allow you to board a plane, cross a border, uh, be entitled to a benefit in the wake of a disaster, or uh, receive an entitlement uh, program uh, really depends. Those answers we have to get right. The public expects and demands that government get it right all of the time. Um, and Amazon, if you get it wrong, send it back. So, I mean, we're obviously in a very different environment, but the point I'm making 
you ask long term, you know, where is the solution? Uh, the solution will rest in the intersection of technology and human beings and human decision making. And f but for now, and I think for the foreseeable future, and what's the foreseeable future in technology? It's really only uh, measured in months, perhaps uh, handfuls of years. Uh, we will need to rely on a physical manifestation of your vote, and that is the paper ballot. You talked about the expectations voters have for the voting process, but is there anything an individual voter can do to improve cybersecurity, especially when you don't work in cybersecurity or for the federal or state government? Yeah, I think you know one of the one of the extraordinary benefits of our system is that your voice and my voice can be heard. Um, we've heard recently about elections that were decided by a single vote that were validated, by the way, through paper ballots. A single vote changed the election. A single vote may, may change, uh, for example, in the state of Virginia, or sorry, the Commonwealth of Virginia, um, you know, the distribution of the legislature. You know, they're going to flip a coin uh, because candidates have ended up exactly even. So as individuals, um, in the first instance, um, you should vote. You know, I, I'm retired uh, from the Army. And when people find that out, they always say, oh, thank you. Thank you for your service. And I say, thank you. Tell me, do you vote? And they say, well, yes, I do. And I say, thank you for yours. Because the service, the, the first thing we should do as individuals is vote. Now looking back at the federal government level, you mentioned the decentralized nature of the elections in the U.S. and how this means that states have a majority of the responsibility in, in securing the election and ensuring the cybersecurity of, of voting machines. But of course, the federal government and the White House have a very important role to play here as well. And so far, the White House's response to Russian interference has been rather muted, at least publicly. And a report, I believe it was last month, said that President Trump has held no cabinet-level meetings on this topic so far. So first of all, how likely do you think it is that there will be a major federally-led push by the White House over the next couple of months before the midterms to improve election cybersecurity? And how necessary is this? Do we need a federally-led effort, or can states really act independently on this? So this is, a, this is, I think, a really good question, and, a, and um, it, it points up the, the, one of the very stark differences between national security, uh, international relations, the intelligence community, the role of our military, um, and homeland security. You know, in national security, Washington serves, the president is, is the head of the National Command Authority. You know, issues are uh, strategic, they're centralized, they're top-driven. Um, in homeland security, Washington is not the command authority, it's the federal partner. And so homeland security serves as the federal partner to states, and I should say particularly for elections, uh, for county and local uh, municipal authorities and officials as well. So Washington's not bossing anybody around uh, in this respect. You know, it's a partner. Uh, it's not the boss. Um, but it does, on Homeland Security certainly, uh, plays a key role. Uh, when Jay Johnson, former Secretary of Homeland Security, designated elections, election infrastructure as critical infrastructure, there was a bit of a reaction. Not because people didn't think election and election m machines and the processes were not critical. 
Everyone knows they are. But what they were objecting to was Washington uh, pronouncing itself um, in this regard. And also because when, when something is designated critical infrastructure, there are additional responsibilities and some say burdens uh, for dealing with it effectively. And so achieving certain standards, maintaining it in certain working order, ensuring that things are functioning properly. And so you know, that, that had, had a big effect on people's mindset about election infrastructure. Following that designation of elections as critical infrastructure that you mentioned, what would be some other policy level solutions to complement the more technical steps that you've mentioned so far? Yeah, again, you know, policy is uh, policy solutions from Washington, I think, in this respect, really should be done uh, in partnership with state and local uh, officials here. Um, I think it would be a mistake for just broad brush pronouncements at a federal level. Um, again, you know, what some might call wand waving um, and, and expecting local jurisdictions who are very hard pressed for funds um, and always have been uh, to just implement, uh, you know, dicta that come out of Washington. But I think um, there, there is uh, an agenda for a joint conversation between the federal government and state and local authorities as well. And that would, agenda would begin with outlining the voting process. How do we know that citizens can have confidence in it, in the registration process, in the preservation of those reservation records? Where are they held? You know, do they adhere to certain standards? You raise the whole issue uh, when we're talking about cybersecurity and elections infrastructure about basic protection. We know, we know what to do uh, to prevent the vast majority of things uh, that can happen in cyberspace. Uh, we know the basic cyber hygiene. Um, and and you, can, you can sort of run through it in your mind and as a practical matter as well. Uh, the Center for Internet Security, which I used to be a part of and I still am a director uh, of, uh, is, is the steward of something called the critical security controls, uh, known to some as the SANS Top 20, uh, but they have been for some time in this not-for-profit not setting. And it's basic cyber hygiene. Do you know what's connected to your networks? Do you know what's running or trying to run on those networks and your systems? Do you know who has access uh, to those systems and has permission to wander around and change settings? And do you have a system in place for continuous diagnostics and monitoring so that you can be alert uh, when vulnerabilities are exposed and to appropriate patching to take? Do you have uh, recognized secure configurations that you're operating off of? This, these practices are pretty straightforward. Um, they're, they're a place to begin for ensuring basic cybersecurity for these electoral systems. That conversation between the federal government and state and local governments um, can take place and can have an effect. Is it already taking place? Are you seeing any discussions or steps towards implementing basic cyber hygiene in these systems? That's a, that's a great question. Of course, of course, people are talking. Um, and the Department of Homeland Security now has a secretary who has a background in cybersecurity, Kirsten Nielsen. Um, and nobody is standing around admiring this problem. Um, people are looking for active ways. There are some who are saying, we'll wait till the federal government sort of tells us what to do. But anyone who has been a state or local official is not standing around waiting for the, the, the federal government to tell them what to do. But what they are looking for are pragmatic solutions that they can afford. 
And so we spoke up earlier about um, can the equipment can the equipment be certified and key parts of the equipment be certified so we sort of know the history and the origins of this equipment. Where did it come from? Who made it? How do we know? On the software side, again, do we have certifications from the software developers and, and the writers of software so that we know uh, that the software that we're employing you know, will do no harm? How do we know? And then when we get into the processes that interact with the public, voter registration, uh, voter validation at the point of, of voting, counting, recording and counting the vote itself, and then reporting. All of those processes um, have an interface with technology. Let's have confidence that that technology is not undermining the process itself. So yes, conversations are going on. Are they generating, do we all have a common understanding of the way forward? Not yet. Uh, so that remains to be done. That messaging remains to happen. And following DEFCON, we've already seen some progress made. For example, Virginia phased out one of the voting machines that was in use there that was identified at DEFCON in the, in the voting machine hacking village as easy to breach prior to its state election in November. And lawmakers in Congress are also pushing the Secure Elections Act bill that would eliminate paperless voting machines, promote routine audits, both things that you've been advocating for. How would you rate these efforts, and, and especially the bill? Is it going far enough? Well, these are all works in progress. And I think, again, there is a broad expectation that Congress will act here, because people do feel as though there are parts of our system that, that really require strengthening. You know, one of the reactions to DEF CON I mentioned was to criticize the white hat hackers who you know, as doing something illegal. You know, you can't break into voting machines. That was really beside the point. But there was a legitimate concern read, um, raised by local authorities saying, you know, you're blaming us um, and we're doing the best we can with limited resources. And that's not really where the blame should be. Well, the fact of the matter is um, there, there will be those who stay in the blame game. I'm more in the camp of how do we solve this problem? How do we create confidence? And I think what you're seeing in Congress is an effort, typically, um, when a problem emerges uh, in this country, you know, Congress will wrestle with the issue. What's the right solution? What's the right path? What's the right tempo to proceed down that path? How should we distribute the responsibility? Where should responsibility lie at the federal level, as we talked about before? Where should the responsibility lie with state and locals? How will we pay for this? And so, you know, the effort in Congress, I think, will see, you know, move back and forth between those who believe uh, in technology and the, our ability rapidly to, to introduce a machine or a device uh, that can solve all the questions and problems we may have around voting. And there are others, I'm, I'm in this camp at the moment, who say we still need paper ballots. We need an ability to audit those paper ballots. Um, I, have, I have confidence in the risk-limiting audits uh, and in the academic work that has gone behind them. Uh, I think that's, it's a, there's a powerful argument uh, for risk-limiting audits as a manageable and affordable process, uh, even at a local level. Um, so I think Congress will act he here. I don't think we've seen the final shape of that action. And I understand that DEFCON is actually planning for next year to not only host the Voting Machine Village again, but inviting local election officials to join them for the village. And of course, these plans are still taking shape. 
But that's something I hope will help build those bridges between white hat hackers, security researchers, and election workers. Since many local election workers manning the polling stations have no previous tech background or experience, how can they keep up with the changes in voting technologies? And what are the expectations that we can set and how can we best support them in, in their work? That's a, that's a really good question um, because it's it's not surprising that many local officials feel criticized and, and responsible somehow for questions that are, are being raised about the integrity of the voting system. They have a responsibility, but let's be frank. Um, you know, the uh, electoral systems provider, the those the the private sector companies that provide equipment and the the uh, technology for the voting system, do have the responsibility to keep them up to date. But there's a pretty onerous process that these companies face, getting recertified every time uh, they introduce a change in technology or in software. And somewhere that process needs to be reconciled. So on the one hand, we have local officials who are, are themselves not technologists, as most of us are not. Um, but on the other hand, we do have companies that, that pride themselves on being at the leading edge of providing technology um, for our voting systems nationwide, and they want to be able to stay up to date, but the certification process that they deal with can be, again, as I said, really onerous, and so that has to be reconciled. So if we're thinking about the future, um, what technology will will we be able to turn to? Will it be our iPhones? Will it be some other device? Will it be a purpose-driven um, uh, device, a device exclusively for voting? Um, maybe. I mean, all of those things certainly are possible, highly individualized to you. I mean, for goodness sake, if we can make technology that can go and keep your heart beating, uh, we can make technology that can validate that it's you casting this vote. But we still have a question about the results that those that that technology generates. So we've talked earlier about how a paper ballot goes into a system, is recorded, um, and then we can always go back and see is that in fact, uh, is that record in fact reflected in the paper document we have. There is of course the reverse process where you go to a device first, register your vote, uh, your preferences, and that generates a piece of paper. So again, we have a physical manifestation of your intent. I think that physical connection to the vote itself is going to be with us for some time. To sum up our discussion, how good do you feel about going to vote in the midterms in November? And is there one thing that you would want to see states at the very least implement that would make you feel better about going to the, the voting stations? So um, I, I believe strongly in voting. Um, and, you know, in, in the voting jurisdiction, I mean, I voted in New York, I voted in Virginia, I voted absentee as a member of the military. Um, I, I have high confidence in our system. I believe in this country. Um, I believe in our ability to correct our problems and get it right. I have high confidence. Um, you know, when you go into the voting, um, when I went in to vote actually this year, uh, the voting poll said, are you Jane Lute? I said, yes. She said, oh, you know, <laughs> I'm so-and-so. She said, we know each other from this, this background. And I, I was very impressed. Um, I'm one of seven children. I wouldn't have picked me out of a crowd. <laughs> but um, there's a level of familiarity at the local level, I think, that also reinforces my confidence. Um, and I really believe in the paper ballot. Um, 
you know, obviously I'm biased, you know, my company, we validate uh, paper documents among other things. And, but I believe in the paper ballot and in the audit system. And I believe it should be tested. So when people see, for example, in Stafford County in Virginia or in other places, that they can go back to the paper ballot and count them and, and be confident that the results that, that they're announcing are in fact the results uh, from the votes themselves, uh, that gives me confidence. And I guess I would say also that you know, voting, like so many other problems, uh, is, is a problem um, where no agency, no single agency, uh, or no single actor can do all that needs doing. DEFCON is a private sector uh, initiative. It's coming together with the public sector, inviting local officials. That's very powerful. And that's the essence of this country, mobilizing all our resources to solve our most important problems. And a confidence in our vote. There is no more fundamental political right than a say in how you're governed. And I express that right through my vote. Yes, I believe in it. Thank you very much, Jane, for this great discussion. It's always a pleasure to have you. You've given me a great opportunity, I think, to cover the waterfront. And this will be a continuing conversation. Uh, and I look forward to participating in it. Thanks, Anna. And thank you for listening to this episode. For more on our cybersecurity work, you can visit AtlanticCouncil.org or follow us on Twitter with the hashtag ACCyber.